the rest of us, I'd like to invite you to open up to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. That'll be page 967, I believe, in the Bibles that we've provided there. Let's pray together. Father, we've come this morning because you're worthy of us coming together to give you praise and to join with the angels who said 2,000 years ago, glory in the highest. God, you are completely worthy of all glory. So God, may your glory even grab our attention now. We pray that you would give us eyes to see your glory and that your glory would drown out every other pursuit, every other relationship that appears to have glory. Father, for you alone are glorious. And any worth that we find in, in something else in this world only has worth as it's related to you. So God, would you strip us of that which holds us back from you? And God, would you empower us to live the life that you designed for us to live? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the events of this past Friday have left us shaken and, and left us searching. And there are so many layers involved as we reflect on the tragedy of, of Newtown, Connecticut. We ask questions like, how could this have happened? We ask questions like, why? Why did this happen? Perhaps there's no greater grief of a parent could ever have than to see their child die. And the, these, these events raise questions, right? Questions in, in, our, in our heart. Are any of us safe? How could this have been prevented? Where is God in all of this? And this morning, listen, it's not, it's not my aim to answer any of these questions in kind of an, an extensive sense, but what I love about God's Word and the depth of God's Word is this passage that we planned, you know, more than a year ago to be on this Sunday speaks with relevance and will help us, I believe, both theologically and practically to, to begin reflecting, hopefully in a healthy way, on these matters. And so last week we saw the disciples confess Jesus as the Christ. Jesus foretells his coming death and he calls people to this radical, costly call to follow him. What true discipleship should look like. And now Luke is going to continue in chapter 9 showing us more about both the person and the work of Christ and the implications he holds for our lives. And so Luke is going to challenge us in verses 28 through the end of the chapter, verse 62, 
to see the glory of Christ and embrace the cost of his cross. Number one, here's what I want us to see this morning. See that the glory of Christ outshines all other competitors. Let's look at this passage in verses 28 through 36. This is what Luke writes. He says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So here we are again after these events. Remember, this is roughly a week after the disciples confess Jesus as the Christ. Jesus immediately on that confession then says, hey, I am the Christ, but I am going to Jerusalem to die. And then he calls them to this costly walk of following him in true discipleship. It's on the heels of this, a week later, that Jesus, again, withdraws to pray. Not uncommon, as we've seen in Luke's gospel. Jesus loved to get away, that he might focus all of his attention, depend totally on the Father for what he has going on and this work that has been set before him. And so he is on the mountain alone, praying. And then, in a unique and extraordinary way, In verse 29, it says, As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. This is what is known as the transfiguration. There's a a word in the Greek that Matthew and Mark use that that, that it's like our word for, for metamorphosis. It means that there was a a change, a transformation. The, The appearance of his face is altered, and his clothes are, are dazzling white. There is this, this radiance that is coming out, this dazzling white. I think Matthew says something like it was, it was like a flash of lightning. And what we have going on here is, is a glimpse, just a glimpse of the pre-existent and the future coming glory of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the eternal, uncreated, 
Son of God, who always existed. There was never a time when God the Son did not exist. And so Jesus is on the mountain and a glimpse of his glory is revealed. Jesus is completely glorious. And this is what the writer of Hebrews was talking about in chapter 1, verse 3, when speaking of Jesus, he says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. I mean, know, know this verse. I mean, here's some Christology for you. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the nature of God. And he upholds the universe with just the word, the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So this glorious Christ is on the mountain praying and then he gets into a conversation with two other glorified servants that would be familiar to the disciples. Moses, the great leader of God's people, the lawgiver, and Elijah, the great prophet who spoke of God's redemptive power even in the midst of judgment. And so Jesus is having this conversation with Moses and Elijah. And we might be kind of interested to know what they're talking about, right? After all, this is kind of uncommon here. And Luke tells us that they were speaking of his departure. Once again, the focus is on where Jesus is going in his mission. His mission is not to stay and kind of set up his kingdom in the here and now, but his mission was to be a savior who was born to die. And so when Luke's talking about his departure, he is speaking of his coming death. And I think we could safely say his coming resurrection and ascension as well. Now, Moving beyond that in verses 34 and 5, it says that as they saw these things and Moses and Elijah depart from them, then a cloud comes. The, the glory of the Lord comes and covers them and a voice comes out of the cloud with this divine endorsement of Christ and says, this is my son, my chosen one. And we saw this in the baptism, right? Something very similar, a similar statement after Jesus is baptized. This is my son and with whom I am well pleased. This time, it's, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And this is so important for the disciples, right? Because they did not get it yet as we're going to continue to see in the gospel. They had much to learn. They didn't have it all together. So they need to listen to Christ. So what's going on here is a lot, really. N number one, this, this voice should have been words of comfort in light of the coming death of Christ. Number two, it, it, it should have reinforced their understanding of Messiah. After all, this is the Son, the Chosen One, Messianic language, speaking of Christ as the ultimate Savior and Deliverer of the world. And then number three, it was again an encouragement to listen to Him because why Jesus is the prophet like Moses. You see, if you read through the Bible this year, perhaps, and you plowed through Deuteronomy, you know that in Deuteronomy 18, 15, there is this prophecy that God will raise up someone like Moses. It says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. 
So this word is for the disciples to say, you need to listen to my son, my chosen one. I mean, let's, let's put it differently. Hang on every word he says. It makes me think of this Rich Mullins song. Rich Mullins was a guy who died too soon by, I guess, our standards, but he was a Christian musician. And he's had some really profound lyrics, and, and uh, there's this, this, this last record that he ever records called the Jesus Demo, just 10 songs all about Christ. And, and, uh, and, and, he, and then one song, he, he speaks of how the, the disciples should have had the attitude, and, and true disciples do have the attitude, that they would just hang on every word. And he says, memorize every word that Christ says. I mean, are, are the words of Christ that valuable to us? Do we come and just sit at the feet of Jesus to learn, to say, teach me, lead me, change me. I don't have it all together. I need your grace, your knowledge, your leadership in my life that I might live my life for you. So we need to see the Glory of Christ in his person, number one. We see that in the transfiguration. Number two, we need to see the glory of Christ in his work. Look in verse 37. It says, On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. And the end of verse 43 says that they were all marveling at everything he was doing. You see, the the authority and the power of Christ have dominated this section in Luke. And this time, Christ's power is contrasted with the, the impotence and the unbelief of his disciples. And I love how Luke tells the story because on the one hand, we have Jesus coming down from the mountain, his, his glory there revealed, and now he is coming back down into the valleys of life. Which is really a good lesson for us because listen, we need to spend time in the presence of God. We need to know the word. We need to come to church. We need to pray. But we do not like kind of live in that sphere 24-7. But we know God and we pursue God that we might not only glorify him, but we might glorify him by interacting with the real world. You know what I'm saying? Like down in the valleys where people are hurting and people are suffering and people need God's grace, mercy, kindness, and love. And so what I love about Jesus, don't miss this. All right, God gave me this right before the sermon uh, today. He, it's not that his glory is just on the mountain. There is glory in Christ descending back down the mountain. And I like that. <laughs> Jesus 
serves this man in his moment of crisis. The, this, this demon, this unclean spirit had, had uh, put this boy into uh, what seems like epilect, epileptic conditions. Convulsed, he, he foamed at the mouth. And, and Jesus has all authority over evil and spiritual forces. And we see this and glimpses it throughout the gospel. But one day, as John prayed, we will see it fully. Christ will, will reverse all of the effects of this fallen world in which we live. And verse 43, again, is the key. It says that all were astonished at the majesty of God. They saw the work of Christ, and they were amazed. They were taken back, astonished, marveled, stunned at what they saw, not only in the person of Christ, but in his work as well. And I would just say this. We need a heavy dose of the glory of Christ today. In fact, there is not a day when we do not need a heavy dose of his glory. Because listen, the glory of Christ inspires us. It motivates us. It draws us on our best and highest days. And the glory of Christ gives us comfort and gives us peace and tells us that there is something more. Something better, something greater, something higher, something purer than what we see in the trappings of this fallen world. We were made to see and live for the glory of Christ. And I will pose this to you. Life will only make sense when you see the glory of Christ and when you live for the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ outshines all other competitors. And it would be wise for us not to lose sight of this scene in verses 20 through 43, because now in verse 44, we're going to have an immediate shift. It says in verse 40, at the end of, look, look at the end of 43 again. It says, while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, while they are marveling, astounded, stunned, he says this, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. This is the second time Jesus has foretold his death. He said, hey, you see my glory? You see everything that's going on? You know how amazing it is? You've never seen this before? But I am about to die. And then, let's keep reading, because it says then in 45 that the disciples did not understand the saying, but it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And then an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. This is reinforcement that they did not understand what he just said. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. So what we have going on here is a call to reject seeking glory for ourselves. You see, we would think, we would hope, we would assume 
and we do this about ourselves, by the way, we would assume that after seeing the glory of Christ, because it was so radiant, because it was so captivating, because it was so inspiring, that the glory of Christ would have just held them there, right? Man, we've never seen anything like this before. We've never seen God with our own eyes. We, we, man, surely we're locked in and just following after His glory. That's what we're living for. But they come down the mountain and they start having an argument about which of them has the greater glory. Who among us is the greatest? So rather than being captivated and seeking the glory of Christ, they kind of just do their thing, not uncommon to man. They start seeking their own glory. And let's not forget that all of this is going on. In the presence of Christ, it says that Jesus, verse 47, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. And we might expect Jesus to kind of level a heavy rebuke here. Guys, I mean, what are you, you know, did we not just kind of have a moment up there on the mountain? You saw my glory and now you're coming back down worried about your own glory. How does this add up? But rather than, you know, coming strong directly to them, he comes in a softer way, but in a way that perhaps carried more punch. It says that he brings in a child and he puts him by his side and then he distributed these heavy words to his proud disciples. He says, hey guys, you see this little kid? Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me for the one who is least among you, like this child. He is the one who is great. So before we get to the heart of what Jesus is doing here in these verses, what I, I want to do is just examine the place of children in the life and ministry of Jesus. The Gospels give us some valuable information about the approach that Jesus took to children. And this was actually countercultural to Judaism, the Judaism of the day. Because in large part, children until the age of 12 would not be taught the Torah in a, in a kind of real uh, involved sense. And so they were really viewed as a waste of time. To spend time with children is kind of a waste in the grand scheme of the more important matters of life. And so when Jesus starts to, to, to bring children to his side, and, and, and many people did not have a framework for what he was up to. And there are a couple of key passages that we should know in order to understand the deep love Jesus had for children. Number one, Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. This is what he says. He says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked him. But Jesus, when he saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on him. Let me give you just four things that we see in the Gospels about Jesus and children. Number one, Jesus loved children and treated them with unique kindness. I mean, the disciples are kind of carrying out the attitude of the day. Hey, Jesus, don't waste your time there. Man, we have bigger and better things to, to spend our time on. And Jesus is just really upset at this point. 
Hey, you guys do not understand what the kingdom looks like. You guys need to be quiet. I'm going to spend some time praying for these children, blessing these children because I have a love for them, a unique love for children. Number two says that Jesus blessed them and held them up as examples for entering the kingdom of God. So he says, if, if, you, want to, if you want to understand what it looks like to enter the kingdom of God, then you need to be like a child. And why is that? Is because children have humility, right? Children are dependent on others for their needs to be met. And children are receptive often to the voice of God. And so Jesus says, let them come to me for such, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Then Matthew 18. This is a text that parallels our text on Luke today. In, in verses 5 and 6, it says this, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. What do we learn here? Number three, Jesus identified completely with children. He said, if, if you receive them, you have received me. It doesn't get much stronger than that. How you treat a child is how you treat me. Jesus puts his life on the line with a kid. That's pretty strong. Number four, Jesus protected the innocence of children. He says, if you cause, this is a strong word for us to, to consider. If you cause one of these children to stumble, it would be better if you didn't even exist. Jesus loved children. Jesus cared for children. Jesus blessed children. He prayed for children. He identified with children. And he protected children. And so should we. And that's why the events of this past Friday shake us to the core. That's why the events of this Friday just leave us wondering and, and searching how. How could this have happened? We're horrified over the loss of 26, six and seven-year-olds. Just kids. We should grieve with the families who are affected, and we should hope for the day when sin evil spiritual forces of darkness are completely done away with. And the good news is that day is on its way. This is the hope we have in Christ. Listen, I know for many people, these events are going to be kind of ammunition to say, man, does God exist? He must not exist. If he cared, these things would never happen. But the kind of flip the script a little bit on that, I, I would actually say that, that when these things happen, while they, they break the heart of God, while the kingdom of God would never look like that, in fact, the complete opposite, I, I would just say that, that tragedies like these only confirm the, the meta-narrative of Scripture. God created a world that was perfect and, and, and he made us to glorify him. But we have rebelled against God, every last one of us, to one degree or another, and our sin has separated us from God. And now the effects of the fall have entered the world and, and these tragedies 
not only happen, to be just honest, that they will continue to happen. And if it were not for God's common grace, they would happen even more frequently. God and his common grace to all people restrains us from being as bad as we could possibly be. So we should be thankful for that. And, and then at the same time, we, again, as, as we've prayed about this morning, we know that justice will ultimately be served by God. Justice belongs to him. It's in his hands. And, and, I, and I'm sure, just in your heart, as you've, you've heard the news, there have been those thoughts of, of just, man, vengeance. And, but, but vengeance belongs to God. And he will reverse all of these wrongs, restore all the pieces of our brokenness when he returns to us. So, so that's Jesus and children in the Gospels. And hopefully that helps us just a little bit begin to process all of these events of this past week. But now Luke 9, where he brings this child by his side. I love what Jesus is doing here. What he's, what he's doing is he's challenging the disciples to stop comparing themselves to one another and rather have the attitude that it's not about how we relate to one another, but it's how we relate to God. So if you receive this child who you do not consider great, then it's like you're receiving me. And if we're being honest, I want you just to kind of take a look in the mirror just for a second. How many of us crave notoriety, success, greatness, not just in and of themselves, but so that we can be lifted up, so that we can be elevated, not only for just our own self-satisfaction, but also in the eyes of others, right? We have this rivalry that, that is in our hearts that we want to be better than the next guy. So we got to get to the gym, right? We got to go to the gym. We got to watch, watch what we eat. We got to study a little bit longer. We got to work a little bit harder. We got to make a little bit more money. Driven by comparing ourselves with others. And Jesus says, look, that is going to cripple you. If you would stop comparing yourself to one another and start realizing that the only comparison that matters is how you relate to me, then you will not only have this, this selfish ambition undercut it from among yourselves, but you'll start looking at everyone with new eyes. Even this little child, you will welcome him because... I change everything. I change how you view every person on the planet. And we see this again in 49 and 50. It says, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out a demon in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So not only did the disciples have this discussion and, and this kind of rivalry amongst themselves, but they were even Concerned about outsiders too, man. Are they going to get the glory? Should we stop them? Jesus says, promote cooperation in the unity. So if you want to be great, 
If we want this church to be great, then, then we don't look around and worry about, man, who is great among us. We just look at the only one who is great, namely God, and we follow him. We reject seeking glory for ourselves. And when we do that, then we are in position to then, number three, experience the glorious cost of following Christ. Verse 51 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when, he, when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Let me just kind of get us up to speed what's happening here. Luke is helping us by the way he is composing his gospel. He is helping us to see that the call to follow Christ is always a call to follow him without condition, even when that following may include and probably will include suffering, rejection, the death of our own agenda and our own desires. You see, he earlier in the chapter, we saw Jesus predicts his death and then immediately Jesus says, hey, if you want to follow me, this is what your life is going to look like. Now, a second time, Jesus has predicted his death. And not only that, but we have in 951, the end of a major section in Luke. Now, for 10 chapters, we have what is called the travelogue through 19, where it's all about this journey to Jerusalem. And this expression is an idiom in, in, in Judaism. He set his face. In other words, he was completely resolved, completely determined to go to Jerusalem. Why? To fulfill his mission. And what did that include? It included his death. Jesus is staring death in the face. He is on a death march to Jerusalem. And it's on the heels of this which, by the way, the rejection of the Samaritans were both their responsibility and part of God's purpose, right? They were, should have received him. And it was, there, 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 there was room for justice there. But Jesus says, not the time for that. And God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, right? So when God delays his judgment so that we would see his glory and turn back to him, And as they go, Jesus is, is saying, look, man, we're not about that because I'm on a mission here. And it's with, with these words then that we move into the second major section on the cost of discipleship in verse 57. Let's take this a couple of verses at a time. It says this, and as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What we are going to see here in this passage are three would-be followers of Jesus. Three different encounters as he is on this march to Jerusalem. This first man should be commended for his initiative, but he should be pitied for his presumption, right? 
He comes to Jesus. He says, Jesus, man, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus turns and he says to him, and Bonhoeffer says that Jesus damps his ardor. <laughs> In other words, he kind of tones down his, his boldness, his earnestness, his passion. Why? Because this man does not understand the kind of commitment that he has just made, right? I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus, real quick, just says this. Look, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man... I don't even have a place to lay my head. For much of his life and much of his ministry, it's not that Jesus never had shelter, but, but many nights he was sleeping under the stars. He had no place. He was rejected. He was on the move. He was itinerant. And he was often homeless. And so what Jesus does here is he pushes back and he says, look, if you really will follow me wherever, you, wherever I will go, then you need to understand something about sacrifice. You see, Jesus knows our idols, and that's important to understand here, okay? These are not conditions. This is not a call for everyone to be homeless today, all right? But Jesus knows our idols, and he is saying, is there, do, you, do you value comfort more than you treasure me? And I think that's a great question for us to ask. The cost of following Jesus is great. And for many, the cost is too great. Sacrifice will be involved. And so let me ask you, is there anything in your life that you need to sacrifice for the sake of Christ? What, what is it that stands in your way of not this kind of casual, hey man, I'm in this, but I'm not really in this. I mean, what is it that you need to do away with that you might follow Christ with a wholehearted commitment to him. Is there anything that you would not give up? I mean, what, what, what is it? What is that one thing in your life that you would just mean? If you had to give that up for Christ, you're just not sure how, it would, how, it would, how your next you know, kind of several months would turn out. That, 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 that might help you diagnose a potential idol in your life, right? So Jesus says, be willing to sacrifice for me. Understand what the cost of discipleship looks like. Then in verse 59, he says to another, this time Jesus takes the initiative, to another he says, follow me. But this would-be disciple said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, admittedly, this seems quite harsh. Is this not a reasonable request on the sake of, on this, you know, part of the, this would-be disciple? Jesus, my father, is dying. Perhaps he's just died, probably dying, based on the context here. How about I go and fulfill what would have been his obligation, his responsibility as a son to go and, and give his father an honorable burial. And so Jesus, to his surprise and ours, says, let the dead bury their own dead. It's kind of a play on words to say those who don't have spiritual life and have not tasted of the kingdom, let them deal with this earthly responsibility and obligation. And what Jesus is doing here is he's, again, not telling us not to care for our families, 
but he is again probably pinpointing an idol in this person's heart that would say, man, this obligation, this responsibility is more important than following you. And Jesus says, look, there is not an obligation. There is no responsibility. This is a privilege that supersedes all of your other plans and commitments. If you have the opportunity to follow me, you should gladly set aside all other responsibilities and relationships, including your family, if it stands in the way at all of you following me. It's a total commitment to Christ. And part of this commitment, as is explicit in this verse, is to what? Proclaim the kingdom of God. This is synonymous with discipleship. If you want to follow Jesus, you will talk about Jesus a lot. That's the goal. Then the third encounter, verse 61, he says, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Again, another reasonable request. This shouldn't take too long. We don't know how long it would take, but, but it seems quite reasonable. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Once again, Jesus knows our idols. And he says, is there anything that you treasure more than you treasure me? You can't follow two things at once. If you want to follow me, this is what it looks like. You put your hand to the plow and you don't look back. Because if you look back, then you are going to be distracted and you're going to cease to follow me. This is such strong imagery here. To put one's hand to the plow is, is a, a full commitment. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lifelong commitment, right? Right? This is enduring. It's not enough to follow Jesus for two days, two weeks, two years, two decades. He is saying, you put your hands up and you never look back. Jesus is everything now. Nothing matters as much as he matters. Nothing is as valuable as he is. Nothing is as worth as much as he is in my life. No earthly relationship, no earthly pursuit, no earthly responsibility. When we see the glory of Christ, we forsake seeking glory for ourselves and we also set aside every other pursuit that might contain a hint of glory for this ultimate glory, which is Christ. What we need to wrestle with here this morning is that these, each of these three would-be disciples had excuses, misplaced priorities that kept them from following Jesus. So let me ask you this morning, is, is there anything that's holding you back? Is there any excuse that you have from a wholehearted, all-out, costly commitment to Christ? A haunting question would be something like this. How many people, because of their work, because of their family, because of their obligations, because of their misplaced loves and priorities, say, Jesus, you sound really good. I probably should follow you, but I'm going to pursue these other endeavors now, and maybe I'll kind of get things right with you later. And to do so is to save one's life.
And by saving one's life, that is how you lose your life. But what Jesus teaches us here in Luke 9, in some very strong terms, but appealing terms, is that though the cost is great to follow Christ, the reward is always better. It's always better. I love David Livingston who said, after spending 50 years in Africa roughly and giving his life, contracting disease, suffering for the sake of the kingdom, at the end of his life, he simply said these words, I have never made a sacrifice. Never. That's how valuable and glorious Christ is. So here's the invitation today. The invitation is like the one that Jesus extends here. Because I am the greatest treasure, because I am worth it all, here is the invitation for every person who hears the call of Christ. Stop seeking glory in yourself. Stop seeking glory in any other pursuit and find all glory and satisfaction in me. That is where life is found. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would give clarity to our sight. For we are far too easily distracted. We are far too easily enticed by other priorities and obligations that we have in this life. We are too quick to wrongly order our loves and affections and allegiance. And so God, we pray that you would show us how worthy and how valuable you are and that in seeing you, you would draw us to yourself and that you would help us to answer this call of discipleship. So God, even now as we respond by reflecting on your sacrifice, would you help us to, to answer this call, to follow you, to, to lose our life that we might save it, to know that there's no sacrifice too great, that you are worth it all, God change us and use us that we might be fit for the kingdom of God, both in entering it and being used by you in it. What a privilege. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.